Welcome to season two of Lean Startup Company podcast series. I'm Heather McGough, co-founder of Lean Startup Company. We are a business education company serving a growing community of entrepreneurs and corporate innovators. We produce webcasts, podcasts, original content, the annual Lean Startup Conference, and offer live and virtual Lean Startup training in the enterprise. Whether you're building a high growth tech startup, a mobile app, a piece of hardware, working in a nonprofit or large bureaucratic organization, adopting Lean Startup methodology can help support continuous innovation and sustainable growth. Today's guest is Alan Lobach. Alan is a serial entrepreneur and angel investor best known for co-founding SkyMall, the company whose retail catalog is available on approximately 80% of all domestic commercial aircraft. During his tenure with SkyMall, Mr. Lobach served as its chief financial officer and its executive VP of marketing. The company enjoyed its IPO in the mid-90s, was later taken private when acquired by Gemstar TV Guide, and has since been acquired multiple times. Mr. Lobach then went on to co-found Integris Analytics Systems, which developed Worthworm, a comprehensive automated valuation system for early stage ventures. Worthworm exited its beta in October 2013 and has quickly gained traction among entrepreneurs, angel investors, venture accelerators, incubators, and university entrepreneurship programs. Alan is a sought-after speaker and writer on topics concerning entrepreneurship and angel investing. The Wall Street Journal named Alan a startup guru. He has served as an entrepreneurship expert for youngentrepreneur.com and participated in an invitation-only event at the White House devoted to that subject. Prior to embarking on his own entrepreneurial journey, Mr. Lobach served eight years with Price Waterhouse's Phoenix office, departing as a senior manager. A 1982 graduate of Arizona State University with a Bachelor of Science in Accounting and alumnus of Claremont McKenna College, Mr. Lobach resides in Scottsdale, Arizona. Hi, Alan. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Heather. I'm pleased to be here. So at the Lean Startup Conference this November, you're going to be leading a workshop on applying Lean Startup methods to management structure. And today's conversation will touch upon a few things you'll be covering in your workshop. So let's start out with this question. What are some common mistakes that startups and entrepreneurs make? Boy, what are some common mistakes they don't make Uh, (laughs) is the... uh, is the better question, uh, particularly among first-time entrepreneurs. Uh, the, the things that I see that range all the way from the mundane to the serious. From, from the mundane standpoint, uh, one of the things that I see very frequently is that somebody will have an idea and he or she will gather around them their, their best friends and assign them very high titles like chief financial officer to a friend who's had a couple of bookkeeping classes because they Mm -hmm. feel like they need to complete a a management team. And so that, what I call title inflation, and I'm sure I didn't coin that term, can become troublesome as as the company grows because the person will inevitably uh, reach a point where their skills uh, are no longer sufficient for to fulfill that particular area of responsibility, you need to bring in somebody who has those skills, and now you've got a problem going back to your friend and saying, I either need you to take a lesser title 
and in most instances, a lesser salary, because otherwise you're going to build a, a hierarchy within your company where the cost structure and the title structure is going to be inflated and, and it makes everything wacky. So that's, that's sort of at the mundane level. At the more mm-hmm. serious level, it's uh, people when they're raising money not understanding the implications of the financing terms that are applied uh, to, to the particular round. And, and perhaps the most common thing that I see uh, is a, what, what I would call a, a great focus on the product or service development and a lack of a commensurate focus on a go-to-market strategy. And at the end of the day, uh, you can have the, the best product or the best service, but if you can't get it in front of your target customers in, in an efficient and consistent manner, you're not going to have much to show for your efforts. Alan, with all the crazy valuations put on hot, hot startups these days, you know, you think Uber and Airbnb, how should an entrepreneur put a realistic value on his or her business? Are, are there any tools out there that can help? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one, Heather. And, and, of course, it depends on where the company is and its maturation. There's, there are a lot more tools available to, to companies that are seeking to place a value for purposes of a Series A or a Series B raise or something uh, something within the so-called series raises. It becomes much tougher if if you're involved in the friends and family or angel investor phases. Uh, but there are some things that you can do. First of all, most most cities where a lot of entrepreneurial activity uh, is taking place have some fairly sophisticated and experienced uh, early stage deal attorneys, and they should generally have a fairly good handle on what valuations are like for a particular vertical at a particular moment in time um, and at a particular stage of development. So deal attorneys are a good place to turn to. Um, secondly, uh, sometimes you can the data will be revealed on a crunch base or uh, a matter mark or a pitch book or some service like that. And then finally, as as you may or may not know, um, I co-founded a company uh, a couple of years ago uh, that offers an online tool called Worthworm, and it's intended to assist people with uh, valuing pre-revenue and and early revenue companies. So it sounds like what you're saying is people shouldn't watch the HBO program Silicon Valley and get the lessons from that. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, The the Silicon Valley program is, at the end of the day, TV and drama, as is Shark Tank, by (laughs) the way. So uh, I I often get asked about Shark Tank, and and while I find it uh, good entertainment, um, I also find that many of the things that are pitched on Shark Tank are not uh, within the the traditional nature of ventures that angel investors and, and VCs would typically follow and invest in, um, and their approach to to valuation is often very very different than than it would be in a in a true entrepreneurial situation, and that's been written about in the past. Um, so 
No, yeah, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't take I, my <laughs> lessons from that. I remember speaking to, um, I think it was the president of the Entrepreneurship Club at the University of Florida, and he said, oh, yeah, I know about 35 people who have been on the show Shark Tank and, uh, you know, kind of gave me the criteria that they have to meet to be on it and had a lot to do with, you know, zany personalities and products, of course. <laughs> yeah, they, they, I mean, you can see it. It's, some of the things that are pitched on there are what I would call investor quality uh, businesses. And I mean that in the conventional sense of the angel and, and venture capital communities. But a lot of the things that are, are discussed on there and pitched are, are more lifestyle type businesses that most angel investors and, and VCs uh, would typically shy away from. So Yeah. All right. Well, we'll get back to reality. Uh, as we know, entrepreneurs wear many hats especially in the early stages of building a company. What areas do you think are most important for managers to focus on? Well, first of all, I think that's one of the best things about being an entrepreneur and, and one of the most exciting things is, is being able, if not compelled, to wear uh, a lot of hats. I think that's how you develop uh, a range of, of skills that makes you a better business person. Um, so while it's difficult, I, I think in many ways it's, it's one of the more exciting aspects of, of being involved in entrepreneurship. In, in terms of what they ought to concentrate on, I, at the end of the day, um, I think you'll hear this from most anybody that, that is in the, in the industry, uh, traction is, is what counts. You got to be able to sell, and you got to be able to sell. Hopefully, at a profit. Although some are doing it um, on on the eyeballs approach, and with profits to come later, um, or the user approach with profits to come later. And so, once again, I think far too often uh, entrepreneurs focus uh, an inordinate amount of their their time, both from a management perspective. Um, and from resources, and also in terms of, of capital, on, on building a product or service without having a good sense of what their scalable early adopter use case will be so that they can gain uh, rather immediate traction and, and begin to scale that traction within that early adopter uh, community. And they, it boggles my mind that so often they leave those things to chance. And, and the, the idea of, I'm going to reference an old movie here, but uh, the idea of the Field of Dreams marketing strategy still seems to be prevalent in, in not only the entrepreneurship community, but just the business community in general. You know, if you build it, they will it. come? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and and frankly, we made that mistake uh, back uh, with SkyMall because we thought that we had a captive audience, which we did, and and felt fairly comfortable that if we placed the catalog in the seat back pockets with compelling products and and fair prices, that people would uh, would flock to it. And our early projections of conversion rate were so wildly optimistic that it's. You know, in retrospect, it's laughable. Now we were able to turn that around and turn it into a successful business, and 
and ultimately take it public. But um, <laughs> if you looked at the early projections, it was definitely uh, somewhat of a field of dream strategy. <laughs> so, Alan, how would you say entrepreneurs can identify the key value drivers of their business? Great, great question. And I am a big proponent of key value drivers. I'm a big proponent of the idea that with any particular company, there's there's a handful of metrics that if you watch and, and you manage them closely, um, you should be on a, on a relatively strong path. And that if you fail to watch those and manage those closely, then you're going to have a difficult run at things. So I think that, uh, first of all, one of, one of the best places you can look at, we're in a great age because so much information is available to people. So if you have a, a public company analog to the type of company that you're starting and, and that is in an early stage, you can read their uh, S1s and their 10Ks and, and the other reports that they file with the SEC and in many instances, those mention metrics that, that those companies follow in, in order to uh, manage their business. So that's one, one place that you can get some ideas. Secondly, and I'll be talking about this at the uh, startup conference in November, I, I think it's important to think of yourself as, as the founders or, or the leaders of an organization as being on, on an island. And you're each on an island. You can't speak with one another, and you can't speak with anybody else. And just ask yourself, what numbers were they delivered to you daily or weekly or, or monthly or, or all three? What numbers would you think you have to have in order to feel like you had a good sense of where the company was at that moment in time? And really think through that question. And um, and try and whittle those down to to five to seven um, key performance indicators. Finally, uh, there's there's pirate metrics which people can look up uh, uh, on Google and and elsewhere. Our good basic set of uh, five metrics that are broad enough that they'll apply to most every business, but specific enough that they're meaningful. And so I would encourage people to to follow all three of those and uh, and see where where they end up. Let's focus a little bit of time now on the lean startup approach. How can okay. the lean startup method be applied to management structure to help entrepreneurs build their company? One of the great things that that drew me to lean startup is that. It, it added a structure to an activity that had been ongoing for for many years prior to the introduction of Lean Startup, but people did it in a uh, somewhat um, haphazard and, and unstructured fashion. And what Lean Startup in part brought to things was it said, look, we have to create a learning organization first and foremost that's in alignment and that's efficient. And the same, those same three principles apply to the management of a company. You, you have to have alignment among the leaders of the company. 
they have to understand what what their vision is and be unified on that vision and they they have to be efficient you can't spend your time managing problems that are of low priority at the expense of managing issues that are at a high priority and you have to be a learning organization you have to have things in place that capture data, as we've discussed, that capture processes so that they're repeatable and reliable, and that surface issues within a company quickly and and then uh, provide a process to assess those issues, get to the root cause, and solve them rather than simply discuss them and, and move them out into the future and so they never get solved they simply plague the company and and so many young companies are taught the focus is so strongly on how to get your product or service to market and how to raise your first round of funding through pitch clinics and and all of those things but there isn't nearly as much of a focus on what do you do when you've got traction and and have to start building a company at a fairly quick pace and how do you do that and you're not taught how to manage those companies and so uh, I, I work with an organization and my advisory service focuses on on working with companies at that stage um, you know roughly two to two to fifty million ten to two hundred and fifty employees that are struggling with those sorts of issues and We've created a, a structure, a management framework that allows them to unify the vision, make sure they have the right people in the right seats, make sure that they're capturing data and, and having that data reported in, in a way that is um, measurable and actionable. There's no sense in gathering data if it's not actionable. You know, if you say, are you satisfied with this product, and someone says yes or no, that's not actionable data. What do you do with that information? Um, and then documenting the processes within your businesses, but not to the extent that you're writing 40-page procedural memos, but that you're, you're capturing the 80% or you're capturing the 20, I'm sorry, the 20% of the procedures that cover 80% of the reliability and compliance within the company. So that ensures that everybody is on the same page, speaking the same language, following the same procedures, so that what results is reliable and valid. And then um, looking at uh, the ways to surface issues in a very open and transparent and candid way among top management and then moving it through the organization and then finally setting um, setting goals that are short-term in nature uh, we look at a 90-day horizon and we try and reset those goals every 90 days and they should only be three or five goals and and they're the things that you believe you have to accomplish in the next 90 days in order for the company to continue to advance and be successful. So we really try and if, if you're trying to manage everything, you're managing nothing. And if you're trying to accomplish everything at one time, chances are you're not going to accomplish much of anything at all. So it's that kind of framework 
that Lean Startup brought to the product and service development and introduction phases of entrepreneurship and those same philosophies um, carry through as a common thread into management of of a fast-growing, innovative company. Well, that certainly sounds like good advice. Alan, we have time for one last question. Now, I know you advise and teach entrepreneurs and students what are some of the lean startup principles you see them struggling with? You know, what's your advice for having them get around those obstacles? Yeah, uh, again, a, a wonderful question. And, and, you know, you're dealing with student entrepreneurs, so they have little experience uh, coming into the program. And, and so uh, you have to take that into account. But within the context of lean startup uh, methodology, I think there are three things that uh, I see them struggle with the most. Um, the first is that they tend to define their competition too narrowly. Uh, most of them define the competition as if nobody's doing exactly what I'm proposing, then they're not competition. And and the fact is that that's incorrect. You have direct competition, you have indirect competition, and if there is an incumbent in your space and that incumbent already has an established relationship with your target customers and has gained those customers' confidence, and what you have isn't particularly or strongly protectable through patents or or other intellectual property um, opportunities that are available to you, then any of those incumbents can generally add functionality that you consider to be unique to your offering, and they can add it more quickly uh, and, and perhaps at a lesser cost than you can, and they've already got the relationship with the customer. So I think you have to look um, more broadly at, the, at defining the competition. And so we talk a lot about it in the class, about indirect and direct competition and um, how you identify that and um, and, and that's how we try and overcome that issue. Secondly, um, as, as you know, Lean Startup relies a great deal on the customer feedback and trying to identify, trying to, to create tests, if you will, whether they're surveys or something else, that generate information from customers. The problem that I see uh, among the student population, and I don't think it's it's uh, limited to the student population, is that oftentimes, again, those tests yield either unreliable data because the tests are either the surveys are worded in a particular way that lead respondents to answer in a in a particular way. So that results in, in invalid or unreliable results. Or the, the tests result in data that, again, you can't take action upon. And so one of the things that we work very heavily on in, in the class is trying to develop the various um, questionnaires and interactions with, with customers to refine our ideas 
and ultimately to develop our, our minimum viable product. We try to develop those tests and questionnaires in whatever form those tests may take in a way that yields reliable and actionable data. And, and one of the ways that I do that is using what's called a so what test, which again, I'm, I'm, I'm not taking credit for coining, but um, <laughs> if you're going to ask a customer a question, prior to asking that question as you're preparing those things, you, you ask the question, you ask yourself, so what? And you keep asking yourself, so what, until you've refined that question down to a point where the answer would yield information that you could act upon. Um, so let me give you an example. Uh, if, if all of the databases that are freely available to you uh, let's say you're selling to small businesses. You, you, you hope to sell to small businesses. That's who you're targeting. And if all the databases that you have define a small business um, as they stratify them as under 50 employees, 51 to 100 employees, and so forth, and you ask questions about those small businesses, that don't fall within the stratifications that are available to you through public databases, then it's going to be very difficult for you to act upon that information and build upon that information through these databases that, that are available to you at, at little or no cost. So why ask the question? Why ask a question that you can't make the greatest use of? So, so we work very hard on, on trying to craft tests that, that can yield valid and actionable results. And then finally, I would say that while students are pretty good at determining who their likely customer segments would be, they, are, uh, they, they struggle with the idea of marrying those customer segments with a viable business model. And, and for instance, their customer segment might be fellow students because that's the customer segment that they know best at this particular moment in, in, uh, in their development. But then you may find with a, with a business model that the amount you need to charge is well out of the realm of what the average student could afford for that particular product or service. So bringing, the, bringing alignment to the customer segments and your business model is, is something they struggle with a great deal. And the way that we overcome that is um, through discussion, through looking at, at uh, various business models that are available to the students for the particular venture that they're, uh, they're contemplating and trying to come up with a, uh, a, a pricing scheme and, and business model that is more uh, conducive to the customer segment or segments that they've selected. So I, I like that you said, you know, ask so what. Um, when when they're documenting, you know, their findings or their actions, 
you know, what are they using to do that? You know, say, I know for me, my sweet spot is sort of like a 45-minute phone call, and I feel like I, you know, get most of the information I need by that point. But with various like, team members doing that sort of thing, yeah, how are they documenting it? <laughs> well, a lot of them choose to use some sort of survey, uh, you know, whether it's MailChimp or something like that, which is a wonderful tool. But it all comes down to what what the questions are. And so we spend an awful lot of time trying to refine those questions, identifying the the objectives uh, of each question and what you're hoping to learn with the answers and then how you would act on those answers if if you were to receive them. And so um, one, maybe the clearest example I can give you, while it's not necessarily venture-related, but it applies to an awful lot of people, is take a person's resume. We're, we're so often taught to just put bullet points down that say we accomplished this or I I can keyboard at 100 words a minute or something like that where, where we're just knocking out, if you will, features, but we're not relating it to our prospective employer. So I challenge people when they put together resumes to ask, so what? Okay, if you can keyboard at 100 words a minute, so what? What conclusion do you want the prospective employer to draw from that statement? And why would you leave that to chance? Why would you leave that conclusion to chance by not completing the statement? So instead of just writing down, I can keyboard at 100 words a minute, say I can keyboard at 100 words a minute, which means that I can accomplish more in less time and be more productive for you and more efficient for you and perhaps save you dollars in personnel costs because I'm capable of doing the work of, of potentially one and a half to two people. That's mm -hmm. the conclusion you want people to draw. It's similar when you're, you're looking at a, a venture and they're developing tests. If you're going to ask a question, you've got to play out in your mind what conclusions you want to be able to draw from the possible answers that you could be given to that question or those questions. And you continue to play the so what game, if you will, and until you have refined the question in such a way, whether it's by providing choices of answers or um, or refining the way that you've asked the question or a combination thereof, so that what gets yielded in the answer is meaningful and actionable for your purposes. Well, otherwise, Alan, we're... Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, we're, I was just going to say, other, otherwise mm -hmm. you're collecting data, but there's very little you can do with it. So it's generally a waste of time. Yeah. Well, Alan, you've been you've been coined the the startup guru. Any uh, last words of wisdom uh, before we're done here? Uh, last words of wisdom would be that uh, we always talk about uh, being on a level playing field, but entrepreneurship 
and and business in general is is not played on on a football field. It's played on a mountain, and every day you're trying to push your venture up that mountain. And in order to do that effectively, you have to manage that company effectively every day using using lean startup methodologies, using the management methodologies that I alluded to earlier. And, and if you don't do that every day, you're either going to slide down the mountain and others are going to surpass you, or you're, you're going to be in a holding pattern, which happens when you hit the ceiling, and others are going to slide past you. And, and so the, the thing that I would ask people to keep in mind in, in terms of entrepreneurship is to keep that visual in that they, it's not a level playing field that you're, you're, you're on. You're on a mountain, and, and you're pushing that venture up every day. And that's not an easy task extraordinarily rewarding task as as you make progress toward the top of that mountain and if you're fortunate to be one of those few companies that actually ascends to the pinnacle of the mountain um, there there's no feeling like it but uh, it's something that that doesn't happen by chance and you have to work it each and every day from from both a management standpoint and from from the more creative imaginative ways of product development and service development and things of that nature. Well, Alan, thank you so much for your advice and time today. We appreciate having you on the show. Heather, it's been my pleasure. I'm uh, looking forward to meeting you at the conference and uh, having an opportunity to, uh, to talk with all the entrepreneurs that are attending. Thanks to our guest, Alan Lobach. I'm Heather McGough from Lean Startup Company. Our team looks forward to having you join us for upcoming podcasts and webcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lean Startup, register for our flagship Lean Startup Conference, or follow our blog. Visit leanstartup.co for more information.